1: Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Max Linsky and I'm here with only Aaron Lammer. Evan Ratliff has skipped the country. Welcome back, Max. It's been some time. Yeah, I've been gone for a while. I I missed the entire New York City heat wave. As you can see, I got a lot of stuff done while you're gone. This beautiful couch in here and uh, all the snacks that are available. Yeah, it's so nice. It looks totally different than when I left. (laughs) I I get very productive when I'm left alone. Um, if you are looking uh, to up your productivity in the form of a newsletter, you might want to check out our sponsor's product, Tiny Letter from the good people at MailChimp, a simple, powerful way to send an email newsletter. Max, what are we, what are we doing today? What are you doing, man? You did this one. This is an Aaron Lammer production. Uh, this week, uh, I talked to uh, Robert Kolker, veteran New York Magazine reporter with a new book out called Lost Girls, which is about uh, the Long Island serial killer and their victims. And as long as we're here without Evan, why not plug ourselves? Uh, Longform has an iPad app, which you can pick up. And we also run a fiction website right now that. Uh,
0: the people ser- don't know about the fiction website.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's like longform.org. We, we talk to, uh, to, to nonfiction writers and post their best work. We're doing the same for fiction, longform.org/slash fiction. Uh, check that out. And uh, here's Bob Colbert. welcome Bob Coker thank you for coming in Thanks for having me We're rolling here this is real this is the real thing I feel like you've um, you've haunted the last week of my life I, I read I read your book I've been reading your book sort of sporadically like on the train and at home and uh, I keep I keep sort of uh, wanting to express to people that I'm in, like a really creeped out mood but I don't want to like sort of be like oh, I'm reading the serial killer book. Um, so for, um, for people who, who haven't heard about it, um, uh, Bob's book Lost Girls uh, came out this week, last, uh, last, day, Tuesday. last Tuesday, um, highly recommend it. Um, if you want a sort of a, uh, quick look at it, um, the piece you published a couple of years, year ago now, or two years ago in, uh, two New- years in-, in New York Magazine about the, the Long Island serial killer was sort of the seed of the book. What, when did the story sort of first come across your radar?
2: Well, in December of 2010, the first four bodies were discovered along Ocean Parkway. These were the bodies of four um, women in their 20s who were presumed to be escorts. They weren't identified yet. And so it seemed clear there was a serial killer just because they all were bound in burlap and and they were all near one another and they all seemed to fit the same general profile. And my editor, um, amazing editor John Gluck, who just left New York Magazine to go work for Anna Wintour at Vogue, um, he and I talked about it and I said I don't want to work on this and there were two reasons for that. And, you know, one was um, that the Craigslist killer case had just happened a year before and they had found him very quickly. They had followed his digital trail yeah. and caught him and I figured well four victims, four digital trails they'll find him four times as fast. By the time I get to Long Island it'll be over and, and there will be very little space for me to operate him. Mm-hmm. And then the the second one I only realized in hindsight, and that's that I didn't think much about the victims at all. I, it didn't occur to me that they might have stories or that they might even be, you know, technically newsworthy. These were, you know, women I assumed who had, who had been dead long before they actually died, Had um, were lost in drugs or were outcast from their families and perhaps even weren't from America. And the, really what I thought of immediately was, and I'm not alone in this, I thought of that scene in season 2 of the wire where they find a shipping container filled with women that yes. been trafficked in from another country you know you may never know who these women are right but then a few months went by and the thaw came and you know the, the police searched again and they started to find more bodies and john gluck rightly said to me we can't ignore this anymore and the question became how to report on it with the police being pretty much in lockdown about it by that time the families of the four women were Surfacing in media reports, and they started to surprise me. These were um, people who maintained a close relationship with their lost loved one. Um, When they went missing, they cared deeply and wanted the police to pay attention, but the police wouldn't pay attention.
1: I I have a question there because you're you're a rare um, writer that I speak to that has something of a regional beat. um, I would say you you write. Uh, as as with the new york magazine title uh about new York, and when you say that these news reports sort of started surfacing what what do you sit on where 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 do you see these reports coming in
2: well um the daily papers the you know tabloids and The times were all heavily interested in the in the search for bodies and in this story mm-hmm. and there was a period where um the daily Beast and you know other like sort of national media was involved too, and definitely c b s and a b c yeah NBC. So, uh, but I, you know, there was a piece in the Daily Beast, I actually winds up in an acknowledgement in the book that actually talked about family members of different victims reaching out to one another and, um, you know, considering themselves to be a sisterhood. And I yeah. thought, well, that's one possible thing I could do. Uh-huh. I could talk to them. And I met one family member and I got this sense of incredible, you know, sorrow, obviously, and concern that the case would grow cold again, and also ambivalence about their relationship with their last loved one. I mean, at the time, they were very very concerned and that the that this person was making the wrong decisions but they didn't want to push them away right by you know confronting them about it and no one no one ever thought that they would be murdered yeah and so now that the worst has happened they're filled with regret and they're very concerned that the person's life as a prostitute would somehow come to define them and and so that's I thought that might be the story. And then, you know, John Gluck again, you know, deserves the Nobel Prize because he said, why don't you get them all together? You know, you talk to one, talk to them all. And that's what I did for the cover story for New York Magazine. And it was a, a bewildering, exhausting, and, you know, emotionally difficult day with five different family members. But actually, some of them brought, one brought other family members too. So more than yeah. five family members all day sitting in Manhattan talking about this case, about their lost loved ones, learning about all of their stories, juggling it all.
1: Did, did it concern you um, as a reporter that sort of the primary organization point of the story, this meeting, was something that you were organizing?
2: No, it made sense for a magazine story. Uh-huh. It became slightly more peculiar in the writing of the book, which I'm happy to get into. Interesting. But, but for a magazine story, it was, you know, I invited... I, I suggested that she reach out to the others, and that they all come together. And they agreed. And then on a on a Tuesday in May, we all assembled.
1: And what was what was the reaction of those families like when when you sort of told them you wanted to do a story about them?
2: Well, the, it was at a moment in the investigation when they the serial killer quality of the case was suddenly bringing them a tremendous amount of attention. Yeah. And so they were very happy that someone might actually solve their daughter's murders. However they were equally concerned that the whole thing could go away mm-hmm. and that the case could go cold all over again and so what i was giving them or uh, you know presenting them with was the the you know the the potential to to tell the world what made their daughters and sisters special in a in a longer magazine like format so that it could kind of color the press coverage and keep people interested in this case and they were they were up for that
1: this was i think uh, I'm not actually positive about this but certainly for myself as a reader the first major story I read about about this case which is somewhat surprising I mean it's it's a pretty big case there there aren't that many serial killers in New York history I can think of about two or three precedents um were you concerned in sort of focusing on the victims that you were going to miss out on the sort of more salacious serial killery aspect of the story
2: yes it was a, it was a counterintuitive move, move and it was not clear that it would be on the cover. Uh-huh. Um, that it might have just be a juicy inside story. Uh, uh, you know, we run four or so stories a week, so yeah, it very well might not have been on the cover. And, um, you know, there's a lot of counterintuitive stuff going on in magazines. You know, they zig, you zag. You know, Jimmy Breslin talks to the grave digger and doesn't, you know, as opposed to everybody else at the Kennedy funeral. Yeah. You know, there's that tradition in journalism. But... Um, you know, sometimes I wonder if I do that too much mm-hmm. in my writing and, you know, that everything winds up a little too quiet. But in this case, it was obviously a very powerful story no matter what. And by the time it was finished, something interesting had happened. The public's appetite for material on this case was reaching its, you know, high point. Um, everybody wanted something new about it and the police had nothing. Yeah. And so, you know, it got so bad you know, that even the New York Times ran a story where they just talked to serial killer profiles about who they think the killer might have been, which is something they normally never do. Yeah. And of course, it got a million hits and was high up in their you know, rankings for the week um, because people wanted to know more. And so the, I took that to you know, the editors of the magazine and I said, you know, everybody wants something on this and we've got something. Let's put it on the cover. Yeah. And um, they agreed and it wound up the cover story.
1: You've had um, you had another story recently that came out in New York Magazine, a story called Kaboom, that uh, traces this couple who were caught with a uh, significant arsenal of weapons and explosives in an apartment in the East Village. And uh, as with the serial killer case, a large amount of the story is sort of taken up describing not the raid that discovered all this stuff, but the sort of family histories of, of both both of these kids and sort of all the points that led up to them there. Um, is, that, is that a style that you've sort of developed as a writer?
2: Yes, it's, a, it's about what I, you know, as a magazine writer and what New York Magazine has to offer, really, institutionally. Yeah. I mean, I am not, I don't sit in the cop shack at one police pl- plaza and I don't have really good cop sources. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really constitutionally built to break news in that way. Um if I were working on a story and I found an inside police source who could help me, I would rejoice, but that doesn't seem to be the way that I go. Instead, I I try to tell people stories. And so with a story like Kaboom or like a serial killer in common, the the, the Long Island serial killer case, I uh, what I had to offer, you know, what the strengths I had to offer those subjects was the ability to have their story told in a nuanced and meaningful way. Yeah, And sometimes people really want that to happen, and when it happens, it it works out well. Other times they say no, and it turns into largely a write-around, and Kaboom was a, a good deal of a write-around as well. Mm-hmm. But even with the write-around, there were enough people close to um, the subjects to really give you a sense of what, you know, a flavor of what their
1: lives were like. So let, let's talk about how you actually construct those sort of ha- family histories. Tell me about sort of the interviewing process. Let's take a story like Kaboom. It's a little bit narrower than the serial Mm -hmm. killer story. You you make a call, you get in contact with the family, and you tell them you want to do this. How does how does the interviewing process go?
2: Well, Kaboom's an interesting case because everybody said no. Uh -uh. You know, the family didn't want to participate and they'd rather not be in New York magazine. Can't imagine why that would be the case. Shocking. Yeah. (laughs) And um and so then we have to make a decision about you know, as a team, you know, whether to bother or whether to whether we still think it's interesting and and the um you know I, at that time i I did something else that I sometimes do, which is I just showed up at Rikers Island hoping to find you know one member of the couple who was in prison. You know, he didn't know I was coming. It's an interesting quirk of the city jails, not the state jails, but the city jails that you don't have to be cleared as a visitor beforehand. You don't need their permission to come. And so I just showed up one day as a visitor and he came out and looked at me with a puzzled look on his face and I introduced myself and told him what I was doing and that I was hoping to tell a more meaningful story than what was in the papers and uh, that that he, you know, had been, as far as I was concerned, m- largely misunderstood, you know, he yeah. was called a neo-Nazi and a demonstrator or an agitator or an Occupy Wall Street, or he was called all sorts of things and that this might be a chance for him to tell a story and he agreed and so for an hour we spoke and that became uh... the the big building block of that story and i've done that before with other stories where i just show up at rikers and i didn't invent that i mean the daily news does it all the
1: time yeah i was the gonna Posts say were you were you the first person there with him? i mean that story was all over the, all over the new york news when it came out
2: i think a reporter from the post actually talked to him briefly once they, oh, Okay, just went there but they but had a different mandate to just sort of jam through a, a short story right um it, it you know it's not a novel it's you know it's again not something i mm-hmm. you know not some magic trick i have that nobody else can do but it's but it's appropriate in these instances cuz it it cuts through a lot of the access problems that journalists have today whether it's lawyers or publicists or managers it just becomes very very difficult to talk to real actual people
1: when you talk about people who are in their 20s whether it's these um junkie kids and Kaboom or it's these Craigslist uh, prostitutes in A Serial Kale Among Us, um, you're really talking about people who are just, just past being children. And when you look at the details of someone's life when they're, say, age you know, 5 to 15, many people have a lot of common details, you know, oh, he played little league baseball, he was a shitty student. How do you how do you sort of pick out the details that can can tell a story about someone like this? You
2: know that that's a that's a very good question. You know I'm I'm not prosecutorial. You know as an interviewer I'm not uh, my style in most cases. Although I'm a generalist at New York Magazine and I'll do it if it's called for. It is not to sit and wait to hang someone on their words and you know snag them in a contradiction or show them show how hypocritical they are. I'm much more interested in telling the story than I am in you know. Uh, nailing the person to the wall yeah and so I that becomes part of my entire affect when I'm when I'm approaching a subject I, I want to tell their story and at the same time I, I I have a respectful distance I'm not I'm not out to sucker them I'm not out to journalist and murder them <laughs> sure I uh, you know I, I I make it perfectly clear you know I'm writing a story for a magazine and I don't show it to them beforehand and I don't I don't call it a collaboration I don't say that they're gonna be my partner um, but I try to come off as a responsible grown-up who's yeah. interested in being reasonable. And and that seems to, you know, quite often work with me. Now, as for finding the details, as for your actual question, yeah. that, that almost immediately all my questions become, you know, what surprised you about this or what, that I ask that all the time. You know, yeah. what was, what's, what was so, di- what made that person special? What What was so different about them from everyone else? And I try to bring out that stuff as I'm talking. But the main thing I do in in situations like that is I go chronologically. I start with where were you born, and I try. You know, obviously, sometimes time is limited, like at Rikers Island. But at other cases, you're not, and you can you can actually sit and go, you know, very slowly chronologically. And then suddenly, I find myself asking much more intelligent questions that bring out what's special and interesting about a person's story.
1: Interesting. Uh, Where were you born?
2: <laughs> I was born in Baltimore uh and uh my entire family's from Baltimore but I grew up in the suburbs when I was 5 we moved to Columbia Maryland the you know great uh, one of those great 1970s you know urban exper- and you know semi-urban experiments uh-huh. you know in a, with a great income mix and great bike paths and wonderful schools and swimming pools and the whole thing
1: were you were you interested in being a writer as a a young person
2: I was I um I wrote, you know, skits and and funny things in elementary school and got a lot of encouragement about that and so I was kind of hooked. And by middle school and high school I was writing movie reviews and writing about the arts and I, I didn't really have any journalism in me. I didn't it didn't necessarily appeal to me although I worked on the school paper. And uh by college I was I was at an undergraduate at Columbia and I edited the the arts magazine. And that was the extent of it. I maybe did one or two reported things all through college, and I thought maybe I would be a film professor or a film critic. I took some graduate classes at Tisch in cinema studies, you know, thinking I might pursue it even more. But then I started to get jobs in, as a local reporter, and the jobs became much more interesting than the graduate program.
1: What like, How did you get the, that first job as a local reporter?
2: Well, I, you know, I graduated in the middle of a bleak recession in 1991, <laughs> and I, I thought I was hot stuff coming from Columbia. And I said, you know, here I am, world. I, I have this amazing degree, and I worked for the student newspaper, and I got no jobs. Nothing from, you know, New York Magazine said no, The New Yorker said no, Time Newsweek said no, there was no internet. Um, And so I was a secretary for a year for a nonprofit group, and did some work around the 92 Democratic Convention. And then about a year or so out of school, I had a freak out that I hadn't done any writing, and I realized it was really what I wanted to do. And so I quit the assistant job I had at the time and um, started to freelance wherever I could and I wrote for independent movie magazines and I was but these were not this wasn't criticism this was interviews where I was making calls and talking to people mm-hmm. and then I did things that I had no expertise in. I wrote for an entertainment law newsletter writing about a new contract and I realized that it was a lot like college it was it was a situation where I'd be air dropped into an unfamiliar environment and suddenly have to figure it all out and report back cogently about it quickly and I realized that 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 was great for my confidence as a as a writer. I got I found it very, very rewarding. I never wanted to be a foreign correspondent. I never wanted to be a White House reporter. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved all the president's men, but I never wanted to be Woodward or Bernstein. It, it was never a thing for me. But then I got my first job, which was at the West Sider and Chelsea Clinton News, little local subscription papers in Manhattan. Writing nope, never,
1: never even heard of it. It still each, exist?
2: I think so. They each have like 10,000 circulation there. At the moment, they're owned by the same family that does the family of newspapers. I mean, that, that publishes the free weeklies like Our Town and the Manhattan Spirit. Oh, okay. And they were, there. They, you know, that was journalism school for me. It was, I was, you know, one of two staff reporters there. Yeah. And um, I would write four or five stories a week. So the equivalent of a daily paper of writing a story a day. And sometimes I'd write about a real estate A battle, and other times about a crime problem or um, a public service issue or a city service issue or homelessness. I got to know all kinds of things about how the city worked, but more than that, I appreciated the, um, you know, the the soap opera quality of it. That, uh, you know, the Times might swoop in once a year to write about the problem happening on Seventy Seventh Street, but those people knew. That I'd be back every week writing about them, yeah. And so I was able to develop sources and you know and write a story that would be continued the next week and then the next week and then the next week. And the narrative aspect of the work really really appealed to me. And I, in hindsight, now that so much of my magazine work is narrative, I, I see now why it appealed to me.
1: I actually it was, it's funny you say that because I one of the things I think is very notable about your book is um, how you cover uh, and there's a sort of a gated beach community. Uh, in uh, Long island that is where adjacent to where the bodies were found and the way that you cover that community this is a very small community i think it's what about a hundred people in the whole community
2: yeah they're 70 some homes
1: uh, you get very very deep into the sort of internal board politics and, and and really like the inner machinations of a very petty small place uh, was that something that you thought about while you were working on this book?
2: Totally. And in, and in my more insecure moments at New York Magazine, I think that I'm just repeating the, the community reporting work over again yeah. on whatever story I'm doing that, I'm, you know, other people are writing about I don't know, John Stewart or Barack yeah. Obama, but I'm like going to a random community in the Hamptons to talk about a real estate battle the same way that I wrote about it as a community reporter.
1: Well, you have a kind of a sensibility that um, I think airs towards sort of uh, behind the scenes, rather than the scenes, you wrote a story about uh, the David Letterman's extortion uh, scandal. Or it's not really a scandal. I don't mm-hmm. know what you call that anti-scandal um, that really focuses not on sort of what's happening in in the front of the show, but the people behind the scenes, the people who make the community that, that makes the makes the show. When you when you go into sort of a little bubbly community like that, that's small enough where people know each other's names and where there's sort of a um, often a sort of an enforced code of silence, I feel like. How do you, you know, uh, it's one thing, how do you go talk to a murder victim's family? How do you go talk to someone who's committed no crime and really is sort of peripheral to the story, doesn't need to necessarily involve themselves?
2: Well, well, readers can tell automatically exactly what you've got and what you don't because you see, like, they're, whether their are attributions, whether the quotes are blind or not. Yeah, and um, in a situation like that, Letterman story—I'm very proud of that story—and I think it revealed interesting things about Letterman. But there's not a lot of attribution in that story. No, it's a lot of blind quotes, and so yeah. it's sort of this symphony of of insights that that are coming from people you don't, you know, you've never heard of before or don't don't know about who their identity is. And so you, it's a that's in a sense a drawback. But you know, you, sometimes for the magazine story, you have to leave that behind and try and tell you know. Get the sense of what's going on there, and that's just very, very aggressive um, source work. That, mm-hmm. The kind of uh, the kind of work that I and a lot of my colleagues do. Um, I don't think I'm particularly the best person at the magazine who does it. It's sometimes a story like that Letterman story. It, it's like we're um, it, it's who catches the case that week. You know? Right. And, you know, who isn't busy? Oh, you know, Bob could do the Letterman story, but you know, Steve or Chris or Vanessa, you know, or Joe or Jennifer or Andrew, they all could have done it too. So it's a nice little sometimes it's a nice accident of timing which one you do.
1: And I'm assuming that you've spent enough time doing this that you've sort of built up a certain amount of confidence. How did you know when you first started having to do that? How did you build up a, a pool of sources and how do you build this sort of web of people that allows you to do these stories?
2: That's a good question. I can I'll start with what I do now is I I try to come at I try to approach people by saying, "Look, you know, I am I'm for real. You know, I work for a real place and and it's not just that I work for a real place, but I've been there almost 15 years. And I'm not leaving the industry anytime soon. Um if if I had been accused of of betraying a source or doing something dishonorable, you would totally see it. It would be all over the internet. Yeah. And I'm not going to do it this time because I know, you know, I've got to I've got to stay I got to keep food on the table. So I'm I'm just not going to, I'm not that guy. I'm not the fly by night guy who's trying to scoop up your quotes and, and do something dishonorable with mm-hmm. it. And that's my approach. Now, um, earlier, I think when you're younger, you have something that someone who is 44 like me now doesn't have, which is a lot of muscle and a lot of time. And you can really, you could work night and day just mm-hmm. pushing really hard to get whatever little bits you can from whoever will be there. And yep. you can, meet people personally for coffee at any time, or for a drink any time, and then suddenly you're, you're part of that world for a brief period and gain people's confidence that way. That's yeah. something I try very hard to do now, but I, I certainly don't have that kind of muscle that I had when I was younger.
1: Well, that's it. I'm, I appreciate you telling me that you're 44. We, <laughs> we, have, an, we have an intern who, who unfortunately has departed Thank you for all your hard work, uh, Chelsea Edgar, um, <laughs> who usually gives me a dossier on people. And now that we don't have that, I'm totally like I'm just sort of blindly uh, trying to piece together people's biography based on sort of uh, limited knowledge of them. So if you're 44, that means uh, you started at New York Magazine. For, uh, I was I was
2: 29 or 30. 29 or 30. You know, I, I bounced around a lot and I, you know, I was one of the first, um, My big break in magazines was that I was one of the first people hired at Time Out New York by Cindy Stivers. And, you know, that I was part of a class of people there that includes Joel Stein and Brett Martin, who has a new book out the same week as Lost Girls. His book is Difficult Men. Put
1: put those both in the show notes. (laughs) Yeah. That's about the uh, sort of HBO revolution and, or Serial TV. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And, um, Adam Sachs, an amazing travel and food writer, and uh, Adam Rappaport, who is um, at Bon Appetit now. He remade Bon Appetit into this sensational magazine. Brandon Holly, who's yeah. a powerhouse, you know, women's magazine and internet editor, who most recently was at Lucky. Like we all were, we all were hired in the mid '90s to launch Time Out New York, and it was like a, it was like any, it was, it when people talk about the early days of. Um, of internet startups like the Atavist or Gawker or yeah. longform you know, I feel like I was a part of I did something like that only in print
1: Well I think this is interesting we had um, uh, max taped a podcast with uh, Vanessa Gregoratis who mm-hmm. who also was sort of talking about her uh, her her 20s in the 90s in New York so I'll, I'll sort of uh, see what it was like for you I think a lot of people um, who are writing now who who are, who are who are starting out um, Their sort of picture of being a writer is like sweatpants at home, four posts a day. It's a very, very different climate. What was that like socially, sort of knowing all of these people? And was there a community?
2: Yes, there was an instant community because jobs were so scarce. I mean, that magazine launched in 1995, so that was before the first internet wave. Yeah. I remember a year or two into Time Out, the people who were writing for me there because I was an editor, not just yeah. a writer. They would say like I would write for you, but I'm going to get twice as much writing for AOL.com, so oh, yeah. screw you. And you know, that, that worked at, a that lot. worked out really well. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, but but when it first started, what Time Out New York represented for New York City, aside from the fact that it was going to supposedly kill the Village Voice, um, was 25 new editorial jobs in a world that had been in lockdown for three or four years. Yeah, and and people like me were watering, at, you know, their their mouths were watering, saying, oh, "Oh my God, there's a place that's actually hiring." And mm. so we were thrilled. And Cindy Stivers is a wonderfully energetic and encouraging person, and so she created a nice environment for us too.
1: So, you've done a lot of. What I think sound like pretty fun stories, um, but Lost Girls is your first book. Mm-hmm. What, um, what was it that about this and, and the timing of this that you said I'm gonna I'm gonna get deeper on this? I want to stay with this story.
2: Well, you know, in my whole career, I I haven't had a novel in my drawer. Mm-hmm. You know, I haven't had an idea for a screenplay that I've been noodling with. I've been very you know dedicated to doing what I'm doing. Yeah, but I, I did I, I did. Have it in mind that I would like to write nonfiction books, and and in in the last five or six years, my work became so narrative. Like, I really stopped. The first few years, you know, I'm young at the magazine, I'm doing whatever they want me to do. I'm bopping around and doing lots of different things. But in the last four or five years, I'm I've told narrative, reported stories, often about crime, and and I wanted to write a book that way too, because it's a chance to really stretch and grow. I had a couple of. um, thoughts about books in the past that really didn't pan out and one of the you know one of the reasons for that is that is a very happy one which is that I'm um, I have a full-time job that pays okay and so uh, whatever advance I get has to be enough to you know let me afford to take six months off or even a year off yeah and those advances really weren't happening but that did happen with Lost Girls but not not right away because it was it's not the most um, you know, it's not the most mainstream idea in the mor- in, in the world. It's a it's a true crime book without a killer.
1: Yeah, I was gonna definitely get to that. So, yeah. was that a when you took this out as a book pitch? Um, there's sort of there's sort of two two ways you can think of the lack of a killer. One is, holy shit, people are gonna be unsatisfied when they get to the end of this book. There's it's not even it's not even a um, like a zodiac kind of thing, where yeah. it's like, here's a great suspect. Um, <laughs> there's really not not a great. I mean, I unless you maybe know something, I don't know. Um, the killer's name doesn't appear in the book. There's not there there's not a great suspect right now. You just uh, take
2: the first letter of every chapter. And yes, de- and then scramble them, and <laughs> you'll find there's really interesting surprise.
1: So that's one level, and the sort of the audience expectation. And then there's this other level, which is holy shit this killing this could be solved you know you could be um, correcting your final page proofs and uh, this guy uh, walks into the uh, the the police station over there and uh, confesses w- was this stuff sort of rattling around when you were conceiving of the book
2: well my I first thought about a book after the cover story came out um, I thought you know and, and just as a little background you know I'm I'm like every other you know Nonfiction writer in the world. I, I love Adrian Nicole LeBlanc. I, I love Alex oh. Kotlowitz. I, I was Aiden I was gonna Simon. I was gonna ask you about Random yeah. Family. Okay, yeah. Great. I'm just I I just um I love the storytelling in in their work, and I love the fact that they kind of lift the veil on a place that you don't know anything about, and that you feel you should know something about. And particularly with Random Family, what I love most about it is, um, I'm a broken record about this around my. Friends and family, but you know, you read the book, and it, or, or I read the book, read, would read the book, and I would have a little silent ledger in my head of on one side would be what happens to these people in the book that that's their their own fault, and what happens to them in the book that's society that's society's fault. And so as I kept going, it seemed like neck and neck, and then suddenly society pulls away and yeah. becomes like clearly to blame. And I thought that was so powerful. And I um. I thought, what if I could tell a story about these families who are all from different parts of America, from small towns or from small parts of big cities that are struggling, places that used to have a lot of jobs, but now the jobs are at Dunkin' Donuts, um, where opportunities are slim and where the Internet suddenly gives some women an option. And what if in telling them st- their, those stories, I could do a little bit of what Random Family did. and And what if I could do it in a way that was like, titanic or from here to eternity you know one of these one of these narratives where you know the ending at the beginning you know they're all going to end up on the same beach together and yet as their narratives interweave you're still engaged because you're wondering how are they going to get there what's going to happen what what twists and turns in spite of yourself you really that's the propulsion of the story and it and i and i thought a book like that wouldn't need the killer if there was a killer boy it would be awesome it'd be great i would love for there to be an arrest in this case, for one thing, but... Get uh, a sequel out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but but without one, it's still a powerful story about a part of America that, that people could learn more about. Yeah. And, and so I brought that to my agents and framed that way, they were very enthusiastic. And I put a proposal together, but even then, you know, half the editors said no immediately saying, you know, five stories about five women in the same situation... There might be a risk of them all running together. Um, And I can talk more about that later in the writing of the book. And then the others seemed interested. And, you know, um, when I met with David Hershey at Harper, one of the first things he said was, we really liked your proposal. You know, we lost out in the bidding to Random Family.
1: Oh, wow. (laughs) And
2: I laughed and I thought to myself, well, you know he understands exactly what this book ought to be. Yeah. And and they never look back from that. He and Barry Harbaugh, who edited the book together, they, they never once said, make this more true crimey or more ripped from the headlines. They wanted yeah. this to have a, um, wanted the narratives to have a power outside of what was going
1: on in the case. I, going back to what you said sort of uh, earlier about sort of uh, society versus, uh, there's a really good quote, I'm sure this appears actually in, in the book about... Um, those, those, those serial HBO shows that uh, The Sopranos is um, a great model of Shakespearean tragedy where you, you uh, sort of, the mind destroys itself and uh, The Wire is Greek tragedy mm-hmm. where the larger forces of society um, thwart uh, the individual, their attempts to uh, escape, um, which I always like is the only time I've ever actually known anything about Shakespearean tragedy or <laughs> Greek tragedy, I but I think that's a, a very apt way to describe uh, the first half of the book for for people who, who haven't read the book I highly recommend reading and it. sort of divided into these two two halves the first half is about exactly as you said the past that took these women from their childhood to lying in burlap sacks on the beach and then the second half of the book is about the investigation it's about this beach community where uh, one of the women disappeared and it's about um, families and friends. The families and friends. It's about all of the sort of collateral damage um, after after the crime. Was that structure like clear from you from the very beginning that you were going to tell it that way?
2: Very broadly, yes. But the fine tuning was was really done by by David and especially Barry mm-hmm. Barry Harbaugh. He really was very brilliant at. You know, I tried I tried in that first part to do interweaving narratives and 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 had a good crack at it and he did some minor adjustments that really made it fit beautifully.
1: How long did you spend with these families? I mean, how how long is your history with with the people in this book?
2: Well, it, you know, the the magazine story was just one day with all of them. And so I was I it was a matter of starting over with them and reaching out to them all over again and saying, "Hey, you know, how about doing this again?" And their lives had changed even in those couple of months. They had been on 48 hours. They had you know getting they were getting tired of the attention they were getting frustrated with the case they didn't see a value in the book some of them others yeah. did yeah and so it was a very long road i spent august and september and even some of october you know I was able to interview some people right away but others not. And I stayed on the clock at the magazine and I would take two-day trips to oh,
1: okay. see the different towns. So you were doing other stories while you were doing this.
2: Yeah, I mean I was very fortunate that the story, the work I was doing for those 6 months that I was still on the clock of the magazine, they were straightforward stories that that didn't um that didn't break my back or anything.
1: Yeah, but do you have like a yearly quota there like Yeah, more or less. More or less. What's yeah, your they, what's what's your uh, what's your target?
2: they would like seven big things to me and then lots of little things in between. Uh, Obviously they want everyone to contribute to the website and and then perhaps to the intelligence or, you know, to do items. for. So if you're
1: shooting for seven a year, like how many, how many balls in the air do you have at a given time?
2: Um, Three or four, three or four. Okay. Um, And it's, that's a change. I mean, we're the, the, you know, the, the realities of the business are that the, that reporters can't sort of chill out the way that they might have in the past. There's the, we have to always really be working
1: on something. Huh. Okay. So you're, so you reconnected with the, the, the families Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of people in this book. Um, this is, uh, this, these are people who led big messy lives, um, that left lots of children and exes. And, uh, I was like constantly while I was reading it, like, trying to draw family trees and, and keep track of where everyone was at. So, I mean, did you have like a section in your phone that had everyone's f- phone? Number? I mean, like how, how did you start sort of uh, piercing into these, these relationships? You
2: know, the note-taking part of it was crazy. I, I completely geeked out with Scrivener and went nuts with, you know, <laughs> with different files and moving things around like like different pieces of the puzzle. I, um, I was... I was very very concerned that I wouldn't get enough biographical material on these five women because I was going in without having done it. I guess ever, a lot of nonfiction authors do. They say yep. I'm going to write a story about climbing to the town of Mount Everest and what if you don't make it to the top. Yeah. So um, I-, I was very worried about it and that worry drove me for quite a long time. And uh, But then the actual technical interviewing of the people that, that was a, a core competence that I have already from interviewing vulnerable people for New York Magazine as a matter of course. So that part actually I could relax while I was getting to know them. And I loaded up hours and hours and hours of audio with with everyone I could for those six months. And then I punched out at New York Magazine and went home to write a first draft. And I spent six months working with the transcripts. I had them transcribed it and transcribe it myself because it would have probably driven me mad and then i had to think to myself how to how to interweave these folks and it's a lot of characters it's a russian novel or it's it's game of thrones you know yeah. what it you know, yeah. what's it gonna be and um but there wasn't enough time to really um get lost in all that i just had to keep writing i just keep going and keep going and keep going so i i i kept going till i could print something out and then reading what i had written was extraordinarily humbling it like brought me to my knees i was saying oh this won't do it all and then suddenly I start that's when I started moving things around and really really realizing what needed to be condensed what needed to mm-hmm. be drawn out what needed to be pushed around but but to be much more specific the one what I the the big thing that happened with me was that because I was so insecure that I didn't have enough that first part of the book had me in it and if you read lost girls and I hope your listeners do.
1: On the newsstand and the uh, iBooks Kindle <laughs> stand now.
2: It, I'm not in part one. I just tell the women's stories, you know, yeah. full stop. It's that's who they are. But I didn't do that with my manuscript, with the, with the first draft of the book. Oh, interesting. I, the chapters begin with little set pieces with, you know, I'm sitting at a, on a park bench with the sister of one mm. of the women. And she's telling me this and she's telling me that. And then we drop back the way that magazine stories often do. And suddenly we are back in time where the last person is a middle, is a little girl. And so there are a lot of jumps in time. And one thing that, that David Hershey and Barry Harbaugh said when they got the manuscript was, um, you have enough. You have enough just to tell their stories. And I said, really? And they said, yes. And that was a, a magnificent moment. And, and much of the revision was me hacking into part one and pulling me out of it and finding new ways to start these chapters. You'll see, like in one chapter, someone's having fun at a at a roller skating rink, or in another chapter, someone is doing hair at a hair you know at a hair salon. You know, those were those were all in the revision.
1: And in order to immerse yourself in the story, you are you're sort of dropping into these these key scenes in, in these people's lives. Uh, you were able to get enough sort of firsthand detail that you could say, you know this day they went roller skating, these people were there, this person was wearing that. I mean, Mm -hmm. you must have had a really interviewed a tremendous amount of detail to be able to get that stuff.
2: Yeah, I spoke with a lot of family members and, you know, and, and, but not just family members. This is, this book isn't just about their childhoods. It's about their lives as, as adults and also their careers as escorts. And so I've spoke to people who you know, worked with them on the streets or, or as, or alongside them at Craigslist and people who facilitated them and loaned their houses or who drove them around and learned their stories too. And so you kind of get this broad universe of this, this underworld that exists and it exists in places where we've all been, you know, Uh, one of the more, you know, crazier moments in the book happens in Times Square, you know, where every, where all of us have been, but it happens at three in the morning and it happens, you know, uh, with a bunch of, um, you know, escorts and 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 pimps.
1: You've done a few stories before. You did a, um, a story about uh, a pilot before. You did a story about people who've uh, falsely confessed uh, to yes. uh, mm-hmm. to to murders they didn't create, which is actually sort of a hidden history of the investigation of technique that often leads to these false confessions. And uh, it sort of struck me when I was reading these that You immerse yourself pretty deeply in the professional history, whether it's being a pilot or being an interrogator and sort of learn the somewhat uh, mundane details uh, of doing it. And in this case of this book, you could really learn a lot about um, how being a prostitute online works, not the sex part, the getting driven around through big bridges and the different cuts between the drivers. How do you how do you investigate something like that? How do you how do you sort of when people have a a profession that way that has its own sort of language and its own bylaws? How do you get into that where you're not asking someone about their experience, you're asking them about the world that that they sort of have learned?
2: Well, I I go chronologically and I slow them down. You know, for instance, learning about how much the escort service paid the driver versus paid one of the women. I was sitting and interviewing one of the drivers, who was also the boyfriend of the missing woman of Shannon yeah. Gilbert, and and um, and that interview began with where were you born, and and it and and only an hour into it, when he's talking about how he first started at the escort service as a driver, which is where he met Shannon. You know, if I were younger and more impatient, I'd say, "Tell me about Shannon," but. I've learned over time to slow them down and mm-hmm. ask every ask whatever you can and say, okay, so you show up on day one, what happens? Like, do you ever show up at an office? Is it all cell phone? Um, who's around? How much are they paying you? How do you know you're going to get paid? Like, like I try to, to walk them through the experience and then they start to get, you know, happy too, because they, they see that there's someone who really wants to understand, you know, wants to walk in their shoes for a while. And so they more and more and more comes out of it. And, uh, that I think, in a way, it's not an uncommon approach to overreport, particularly when you're writing magazine stories like this for a place like New York Magazine, where you're pushing hard and it's often competitive with somebody else. You overreport, you find out more than you would ever possibly need to know, and then you dial it back for the story. And so I was ready to do that with the book too.
1: It's an it's an interesting contrast in that for all of the detail you have about uh, these people, there's very little. Um, sort of armchair psychology about the killer. The killer is almost a forgotten aspect in the book. There's, you don't speculate heavily on the killer. You let other people occasionally speculate on the killer, but you don't sort of yourself, like, there's not an interview in the book with an FBI psychologist that's a profile of the killer. You don't sort of allow that to enter. Was that a conscious choice you made?
2: Yeah, you know, I tried. You know, In an early version, I tried to sort of spitball about why the killer would do this and why the killer would do that in kind of a short interstitial chapter that would go somewhere in the book. But I my you know for better or for worse my heart's not in that that mystery. I I want him to be caught and he's obviously a predator and he's unstable. Yeah. But they all are. They're all messed up people who victimize other people and they all look normal. Yeah. And 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 there's the 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 art and science of catching serial killers I think is is slightly has become more than slightly overblown in our society, and I mean, you know, I love Silence of the Lambs, and I, yeah. you know, I'm a fan. And but I'm I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that that our obsession with who who the serial killer is and why the why a serial killer does it is in proportion with with how interesting they end up being.
1: In the case of this book, uh, you're making a pretty pow- telling a pretty powerful story about class in America and about. You know what happens to people who who fuck up, who are who don't have any safety net, and who who sort of fall through. But the the book never sort of sums that up. You never say there's no there's no epilogue really to the book. I don't know, maybe there is an epilogue. There's no sort of hey, let's zoom back and talk about what all this stuff means. Was that a was that a conscious choice and? How do you tell a story like that without sort of, there's no cheat sheet. There's no, this is some stuff you might want to think about for your study and discussion group. Um, is, that, is that something you've developed as sort of a reporter? You just tell the story linearly and let people pick apart what it means?
2: Well, with, with a lot of the magazine stories I work on, it's an open question. As I begin, how much of it is going to be about a big issue and how much of it is going to be the yarn yeah, the narrative? Yeah. And some wind up being twenty eighty and some wind up being eighty twenty and some yeah. being fifty fifty. And with this I, I was very devoted for to it being a powerful storytelling experience. And I don't wanna you know, I've never met Adrian Nicola Blank and I apologize if I if I if I'm blomming on to her work too much but uh, you know
1: I don't, I don't think she's gonna complain yeah, about that. You, know, <laughs> you just no, talked about me too much on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: mean there I don't I don't seem to recall an epilogue or a prologue no, and says, all. you know poverty is a problem in our society. So I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to suddenly put on the, the official voice. Yeah I do go a little bit there toward the in the in the last chapter sort of flicking at some of the bigger Craigslist issues. And then where I really do it, and I feel very privileged to have been able to do it, is in a New York Times op-ed piece that came out a couple of weeks ago, where I, I start by exerting the book a little bit with a little bit of material about one of the women, but then I branch out and, and get into the issues of the new prostitution. Mm-hmm. And that that is, you know, I wasn't planning for it to be that, but suddenly I, I can, I've written something that I can look back on as not an answer key to the book, but sort of a guide, a study guide to the book.
1: After you spend... Uh, several years on this. this is your biggest project. Is it going to be hard to, to walk away from it now?
2: It is from in a couple of ways. at First, it, just from a process point of view, there there have been six months here where the book's been more or less done, but it yeah. hasn't been public, and I've been just freaking out, like afraid of that the book might be ignored or it might backfire in some way. And now that there's all this very nice attention, I'm very relieved. But I also now have to get to use get used to the idea that I don't have to worry and fuss and. Fred over the book anymore and mm-hmm. so that's a very happy task uh, at hand and then you know um, I, I would I would like to um, detach a little bit at some point but I, I don't want to let go of the you know what I've learned here and of the places I've been I mean I'm very grateful for this experience it it you know anyone like me who's a who's a reporter who really wants firsthand experiences talking to people who you would never otherwise talk to you know treasures moments like this where you're suddenly flung into a world that that you um never imagined being in uh there are other moments like that in my reporting life that have been wonderful like like something even something as seemingly trivial as new york magazine's best doctors issue i suddenly would find myself sitting in on surgery watching a surgeon perform brain surgery and heart i've seen heart surgery three times now you know and um uh, and and to me that's just one of the most amazing that's why that's why I'm doing this it's to be be in these places and see amazing things that you'd never see before
1: is there like a kind of story you've always wanted to do that's never come together do you have sort of a dream story that
2: that's a really good question I am um, yeah I, I would like to write um at some point the work sort of like Tracy Kidder's work where you're you can zero in on an inspiring person who is really, Done something special, yeah, and and help tell their story. So much of my work about vulnerable sources is so, you know, so difficult and often cathartic. But it, you know, uh, in the spirit of variety, it might be nice to tell a happy story.
1: So that's a that seems like an admirable goal. <laughs> <laughs> um, seems as good a place to end as anyway thank you very much for coming in um bob colker uh lost girls is available now uh all the stories we talked about are going to be available in the show notes i'm aaron lammer my co-hosts are max linsky and evan ratliff our editor is lauren kirchner we'll be back next week